Hello friends, welcome back to Imago Gay, a play on the term Imago Day because the dignity of LGBTQ lives matter. It is a beautiful day where I'm at and I hope you all are walking somewhere beautiful today with a breeze in your face and with love all around you. Joy and a life well lived is the greatest gift we can give to ourselves and some would say the best revenge. As I continue to share some of my story and journey to an affirming theology, I wanted to start back at the beginning and ask you all the question, when was your first encounter with God? And what made church sacred to you? I don't come from a religious background, and I've stated this many times before, so in many ways, homophobia and some of the misogyny that I've experienced in the church was very unfamiliar to my personal experiences growing up. My parents held nominal beliefs about God and the afterlife. I, however, found myself gravitating to a more structured expression of faith. With no coercion from anyone else, I joined a church at the age of 10 and got baptized at the age of 12. I was introduced to faith through my best friend, who I met when my family moved to California. At 12, attending church wasn't the result of a religious campaign. It wasn't vigorous studies on Revelation or Daniel. It was the result of friendship. It was the result of acceptance. It was the result of the respect I received, even as a little girl, from a friend. So one day I invited myself to her church, and there I discovered an even deeper sense of being known. Church was the place where I connected with a God who saw me. Without a word, I felt understood. In this sacred space is where I encountered God, as space. Not advice, not judgment, not theology, not even words sometimes. My relationship with God was a silent understanding, a, a nod of sympathy between two people. For me, church was about connecting in that unspoken place, the place too deep for words. This is what made church sacred to me. My relationship with God and the church are two very different relationships. My pursuit of pastoral education was largely shaped by my deep convictions for social justice and advocacy. Growing up, I had seen the church historically take on issues like helping the poor, the homeless, and the helpless. And I watched it speak truth to power and to be critical of greed and grandiosity. I often listened to my pastor speak of social evils while making his appeal for justice. Theological critiques over biblical interpretation came secondary to a robust focus on humanitarian efforts. This education shaped my values and priorities. It guided me when I sat in these areas that seemed ethically gray and challenged me with questions like, what is justice for the least of these? The faith I witnessed expressed through the experience of the marginalized class is what taught me faith in its purest form, love. 
My relationship with God and my relationship with the church is very different. For me, God is not only an idealist, but is also deeply practical. In this way, sin is not imaginary harm, but quantifiable harm. Harm to people, harm to animals, harm to the environment, harm to ourselves. In a world where late-stage capitalism has tied many of our purchases to child labor, wage-suppressed labor, sometimes even slave labor, some days we can only choose the road of least harm. Ethics is about parsing out the details and finding the best possible solutions for people. It's messy. However, the institutional pursuit of an idealized image or hope that we have of ourselves, I would argue, is often ethically harmful. The creation of norms that only a few in a privileged class can achieve is damaging to those who live on the margins. My experience as one who was thrust onto those margins has revealed a fatal flaw in a system that might have continued to go undetected by me. As embedded in the word understanding, sometimes a person has to stand under a system or belief in order to recognize the harm. So over the years, my experience under certain theological beliefs have made me question the ethics of these beliefs. Ethics deals with the questions of justice and the effects of actions on both individuals and society. It asks questions like, what are the harmful outcomes of this action, bodily, mentally, emotionally? How do we achieve X with the least amount of unnecessary harm? Rather than dealing with how to care for human beings, throughout my experiences, I began noticing a religion where harm was not defined by harm done to people, emotionally, mentally, and physically, but in elusive terms, to describe one falling short of a theoretically constructed ideal. Well, the story you are about to hear is one story among many. This particular story gives an example regarding how other theological beliefs that I have held have shifted over time. They shifted because I found harm in them. This is a story that outlines one of my shifts in a belief regarding one of the most fundamental Christian traditions, and that is marriage and divorce. Currently in Adventism, the only grounds for divorce and remarriage is adultery. There is permission to divorce if there is physical violence, but not emotional, verbal, and financial abuse. If you do divorce over physical abuse, you are not permitted to be remarried. I even heard a story of a professor tell us how he disfellowshipped a woman for being remarried 10 years after she divorced her physically abusive husband. Now this is one step on the journey to an affirming theology that has led me to where I am today. Those preceding steps I will be talking about in future episodes. tell you what what one of my breaking points was like so there was a period of time where I was like really I can say the entirety of my marriage I was living in and out of my car right this person was like kicking me out all the time I I had my clothes in the trunk of my car and I kind of got into this habit of you know me and my dog sleeping by the beach in my little small Toyota Yaris and I, I would literally I would wake up in the morning go to the gym 
maybe swim, do some type of exercise, shower, spend some time in the hot tub, and get dressed and go for my day. And then the end of the night would be the same thing. I would go to the gym, shower, all that stuff. And I remember one night, I'd done my whole routine. I'm outside, and it's like 10 o'clock, and I have my Kindle, and I'm reading Ellen White. <laughs> of course. Uh, I'm reading, like, like selected messages or something, and I, I keep just thinking, like, I just need to read more. Like, I want to find these answers that I'm looking for. Can I leave my marriage? Should I stay? Or, or how can I be a better wife, right? To make him good. To make him good, right? Um, you know, maybe, maybe I do have this innate rebellion that I need to get fixed, this personality that I need to change, so still more purification talk to myself. And one night... That just makes me so sad. <laughs> Brief pause. Yes. Because I think that's... I mean, I relate to that in a different way, but it is so clearly wrong to be kicked out of the home by another person. And to go into your own self-introspection to know, is there something faulty in you that needs purification or that you need to learn yet even more skills to... More devotion, more like, more ways to be quiet, more ways to disappear, more ways to not speak my mind. More Void ways. yourself of yeah. whatever you, to be exactly what this person, like that's an example. If that's not a breaking point for somebody, you know. And it wasn't actually. It was like, <laughs> I, I'm willing to go through the gauntlet. I was getting tired. I can tell you that I was, as definitely after doing this for like almost three years, like I'm tired, um, but I'm still hopeful but the breaking point, uh, see, I was a really devoid at this point of self-compassion. I, I really saw myself as somebody who needed a lot of purification. Like I really had this narrative really drilled into me that I was a rebellious person. That Like the things that I would voice that to me now is just like kind of just normal things that I would talk about, social justice and women's rights and like things like that were just signs of this rebelliousness that just wouldn't die. And this person wanted to crush this part of me. But one night as I'm reading Ellen White, <laughs> um, there's a, a truck that, so I'm, I'm parked in this kind of rich neighborhood, but it's like a rich neighborhood that's by the beach. So there's like a lot of alcoholics and homeless people living there as well. And it's kind of this weird dichotomy of like both very rich and very poor. And so I'm parked on this side street. I have a perfect view of the ocean. And on both sides are different sides of the street. And across the street is the ocean. And there's this truck that came uh, and, like, screeched in the middle of the street, like, right in front of my ocean view. And um, I, I didn't even look up from my Kindle because I'm like, this is very typical Saturday night kind of shenanigans that happens when people drink too much. So I'm just reading my Kindle, and I hear these, these tires screech in the middle of the road. Still reading, don't care. <laughs> and I hear this man yelling at the top of his lungs. And I immediately knew that he was talking to a woman just because I hadn't heard her voice. All I heard was the way that he was talking to her. I had heard this voice. I've heard this tone of voice. I've heard these words a million times. Like I, I knew this spirit, so to speak. 
And he comes around out of the driver's seat to the passenger side, pulls open the door, and is yelling at her to get out of the car. And I, I, she hasn't said anything. I haven't heard her voice. I haven't anything. And I'm watching this whole event unfold. And all I can think is, oh, my goodness, please just leave. You don't deserve to be treated this way. And I remember thinking, didn't have a whole lot of money in my bank account, but I was thinking, I'll, I'll, kind of, I'll find you a hotel for the night. Even though I was sleeping in my car, I'm, I'm willing to spend money on a stranger to house them. And thinking, I don't know why these words were in my head, but I was like, if they don't want you, I'll take care of you, right? Uh, if, if they're going to mistreat you, I'll, I'll, I'll help. And she gets out the car. She's walking down the street and he yells at her a lot of profanities. Then he tells her, like, give me my effing sweater back. And she takes off the sweater off of her body. And all she has on under her sweater is a bra. So she's walking down the street like at 10, 1030 at night with just a bra on and her jeans. And he happily takes the sweater and is not ashamed at all. He, his intent is to humiliate her. And he gets in his truck and he drives off. And, you know, I get out of my car and I chase her down and I'm just like, hey, I have some clothes for you in my trunk. Like I've been living in my trunk, so I had plenty of options. I bring her a sweater and, and I cover her with it. And then we go back to my car and we get her something to wear. And I was like, do you have some place to stay? Like, do you have family? Do you have whatever? And she's like, no, 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 I need to get back. I need to get back. And I had seen this cycle even within myself of like, this is definitely a deal breaker in a relationship. Um, but she's in this cycle of like addiction almost to this person. And she knows the deal. She's done it a million times probably. And she knows the expectation is that she's going to crawl back and say that she's sorry. And he's going to probably be very angry with her. But eventually they'll get back to a space of normalcy. And then this will happen again. And anyway, she doesn't want any help. She leaves. I, I give her my number if she does need to help. Um, but I remember after she left, I'm sitting in my car, knowing that we are both in the same situation. And at that moment, you know, whether it was God talking to me or my own reason, I remember thinking, in my mind, God was saying, um, if you feel that way about a stranger, how do you think I feel about you when I watch your situation unfold. And the words of, if he doesn't want you, I will take care of you, were the words that God was speaking to me. Hmm. And I could not see myself. I could not have that compassion upon myself until I saw it happen to somebody else and saw what I look like. I literally, there was nobody else out. This is like a, a TV show just for me mm -hmm. to see this entire display breakdown. And, 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 it, and it took me having to see somebody else go through it for me to actually see myself. And that's how neglectful uh, or willing to go down any measure that God would call me to, uh, that I was willing to be until God said, this is not healthy and I am giving you my out um, so for me, that was the breaking point. It wasn't the actual parts that hurt. It was God finally giving me a mirror to see myself and saying, this is not 
the thriving and the life that I've called you to. This is not who I am. This is not what I promote, right? And that was a more compassionate theology than I had ever heard. I had been reading and watching things about divorce and abuse and, and does God permit this or permit that? And I hadn't heard it. I hadn't, I hadn't heard somebody in the church, so, so to speak, say that God has permission for you to leave that type of situation. So that's just so powerful too, because I think having that experience and hearing God speak to you in that way, sure, it's it's not you read it in the Bible, you know, it's not all the reading of Ellen we Ellen G. White that night. It was this kind of lived out experience exactly. where you felt compassion towards another person. You felt like you have enough faculties spiritually, emotionally, mentally to make sense that this scenario is unfair and unkind to this person. That display in front of you and you experiencing compassion for another human being and realizing that compassion that you have for another person is the kind of compassion I have for you. So this situation that you are in, that are finding a theology to kind of stay in, finding a theology to kind of say, this is what you deserve, I am showing you. I don't think you deserve to be mistreated. I don't think you deserve. I just feel like I have so many of those moments that have mm -hmm. landed me into... A, a kind of a self-loving place that I, it, it wasn't scripture, you know? Yeah, it was. It was everything I knew mm -hmm. about God mm -hmm. speaking to me in a moment of t in time mm -hmm. and sharing with me a theology that felt more congruent with everything I had heard and read in my life than the things that I was holding on to to justify my suffering. Exactly. I think... Like you're saying, there are many moments in our journeys that we've had moments like this. This is a very marked moment. But I think there's other moments, and this is why a lot of my rhetoric has been, we have to take responsibility for the implications of our theology. Right? If our theology is producing bad fruit, meaning it is injuring people mentally, emotionally, spiritually, we need to take inventory of this and say, you know, we can't continue to neglect the suffering that happens at the hands of bad theology. And I think that for me, these types of experiences gave me permission to question and to, um, to add in that element to say this is a really important part of how we decide to exegete a text is the ways that people are experiencing this theology in their practical life. And that includes the ways that LGBTQ theology has been traditionally taught. Okay, so help me help me understand what happens after the breaking point. And by that I mean theologically. Maybe not so much. Maybe you can share a little bit of what happens in your marriage after Mm -hmm. this breaking point, but theologically. So you, 
theologically, you're in a place of how can I be more submissive? I don't have any grounds to divorce him. I, I wish there was. I'm trying to find something that helps <laughs> me get out of this marriage. But if I have to be here, how can I do this better so that I'm not suffering all the time? How can I avoid these confrontations traps. and yeah. traps? Okay. So how do you go from this point or what happens after your breaking point? Mm-hmm. Does that narrative begin to change at all? Or is it kind of like everything else? Did it happen over time? Did it happen instantly? Yeah, I wish that it did happen more instantly, right? I think what happened was I had an outside perspective that I was able to look at my own life through. And and so I went back and had more of these tug of wars of like, I know this is bad and this is terrible. Um, and I think I tried to spend more and more time in my car. Like I, like I tried to transition my living situation, but I was just in this place of financial vulnerability that I wasn't able to fully like exit the nest. I think like the longest time I spent in my car was maybe like a month, right? I would spend maybe a week at a time, maybe a couple of days. And then this period was like, okay, we're done. Like I'm going to spend a month living in my car and trying to make it. And I hadn't told anybody in my family. I still had this perception that I'm supposed to be, you know, witnessing to my family. How can a failed marriage witness, right? So I had all of these secrets or this person that I tried to sell everybody on of, as, of being like a good spiritual teacher uh, is, is abusing me, right? Or how can I now admit this? Because doesn't that negate all of the other good things about religion that I'm trying to promote. It's, I feel like it would undermine my mission. So I'm doing all this juggling in my mind um, and being very broken down by, I think homelessness is very tiring. If you see somebody sleeping, a homeless person sleeping in the daytime, it's not because they're lazy. It's because they've probably been up all night fighting over their stuff, staying vigilant, trying to be safe, right? And then by the time the day comes, they're exhausted. And so, you know, all of these parts were like wearing down. And I think a part of even my ex's strategy was like to wear me down. And like if she just stays out long enough, she'll want a place to sleep and hopefully she'll be a little more compliant, right? Mm. Um, And I was in this place of like really trying to resist those yeah, those needs, right, um, so that I can move on to the next space. And so I think at some point I had some family come to town and I just took my opportunity to finally confess everything and live with them for a little bit. And maybe for like, it was like two weeks. It wasn't even that long. And then I was able to transition into my own permanent housing situation. So at, after that point happened, I had to begin transitioning myself out of it. I'm a very mystical person and I think I work a lot of, out of signs and wonders. Um, and I remember going to a therapist and I needed to find a Christian therapist because I wasn't going to trust anybody else at this point. And I remember thinking, if I tell this therapist, this Christian therapist, what's going on in my marriage and she says to get a divorce and she doesn't charge me <laughs> for my consultation, I will know this is from God, right? Mm-hmm. And it was so, so bizarre. But I remember like this therapist being like, 
you need to divorce this person. And that had gone against everything that I thought I was allowed to do. I thought maybe separation at most was what was biblically allowable. And then this person just be like, well, if you're really meant to be together, like you guys can always get remarried, right? Like if this is the the magical love story <laughs> that it's supposed to be, that's also a possibility. But I think also understanding that that was just not likely, that this this was a toxic, dangerous situation. Um, so little things like that continue to confirm my exit out and continue to give me permission to leave. And so that's that that's how my personal theology about marriage and divorce changed because of this experience. I think if we could do that with homosexuality, if we could validate how experiences kind of molded, shaped, liberated us right. from certain chains that kept us in a very It's hard to paint, I don't want to say abusive space, but when when you're at the verge of committing suicide because you just hate the way your homosexuality is rising up to the forefront in any given time, yeah. you have a crush on somebody you're not supposed to have a crush on, you feel disgusting for even knowing that lives in you, even if you're not practicing, even if you're not indulging anything, even if you are in a really great relationship and yeah. it's not really, you just feel inherently disgusting for having, and it's not something you can shake off. Sure. Contrary to what people believe about separating practice from identity, it's something that sticks with you, even if you don't practice, you know, quote unquote, like, yeah. It's not something, it's not a feeling you shake off. You know within yourself that's still there. So I, I think we're not going to get through the end of this story of all these little points and transitions that have come to a turning point to become LGBTQ affirming. That's part of our future episodes. I think a lot of people who have an LGBTQ affirming position are people who are incredibly selfless and sacrificial and have been willing to make any type of sacrifice necessary. And they have gone through a journey to see how that theology doesn't always play out in the most healthy ways in the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to tell somebody in my personal life, I think they were of the mind that if, if my sexuality had been addressed at a young age, maybe there was some fixing to be done and accomplished. And I was like, there is absolutely nothing anybody else could have done that would have been more effective than the internalized homophobia I had. Nobody wanted to overcome it more than myself. Nobody was more disappointed or grieved by then myself. Nobody cried over it more. Nobody hated it more. Nobody did it, did the whole stages, right? The whole bargaining. God, how many years will I dedicate to you? Fix me. I Fix right. me. I give you full permission. You know, there was nobody more depressed about it. Nobody closer to just completely distraught over the reality. So 
it's offensive on so many levels to be treated or to be discarded or dismissed as somebody who just doesn't take it seriously enough, who isn't intelligent enough, committed enough, moral enough. I, 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 I don't approach anybody in my life like that. Right. My invitation today is if you listen to this podcast and you stand on either side, an affirming theology and non-affirming theology of LGBTQ, that you would at least promote a culture that respects the dignity of every person and mm. assumes that they're not coming from a rebellious place. place. Yeah. Not too long ago, watched a documentary on The Challenger, and I think this is also the appeal of different crime podcasts is, you know, you get to see, you always hear the story of like, oh, they ignored this and they ignored this and then all these people died, right? Uh, whether it's a malfunction in an airplane or a malfunction in a space rocket, uh, there were always these signs that led up before somebody died, right? Points of intervention that people could have stepped in and fix the problem, but they were too invested in this system. For example, uh, the space shuttle was supposed to be that. They wanted to create a shuttle. They wanted, like, every month at some point, they wanted to be able to bring people up to space. Um, and so they were on this really strict time crunch, and they ignored the fact that some of their bearings were failing, and it ended up causing some people's lives. And I think it's so easy to try and put the blame on, well, the people are just broken. It's so much easier to throw people and their theology under the bus than to go back and say, let's reinvestigate the way that this is systematically approached and the highest levels of our institution. Because the assumption is that the, the, it's easier to destroy a person, right? It's easier to to criticize the person and the way that they're doing theology than to look at the system itself and do all of the work that correcting that system would take. And so kind of, you know, my challenge or my appeal really borders on what I'm taking away from some of these crime podcasts and crime shows, which is if we don't stop now to investigate, then the train wreck that we have ahead of us and the fallout from that can be something so catastrophic that it'll put the entire industry underwater, right? So NASA had to completely stop this progress, and they lost a ton of funding because of it, uh, because they were so focused on mission, right? They're so focused on having this, this idea that they wanted to accomplish, that they were willing to take these risks. So I, I think the same thing when it comes to the institution, right? Like, we have to stop listen to the warnings uh, that are coming and, and not just be willing to have the casualties and the human casualties because at some point there's going to be too big of a, a crash that you're not going to be able to recover. People matter more than these institutional ideals that we might want to uphold. Be loud, be bold. Be brave this week. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. And if you'd like to follow spiritual care provider Roxanne, you can follow her on Instagram at Roxanne.
Marie. Imago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. In addition to curious conversations, I have been so grateful to hear from all of you who have reached out and shared your personal stories, tragedies, and triumphs within the queer faith community. If you are enjoying this content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to reach me, you can do so at Kendra R. Snow with an X on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow our sponsors, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship, and be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. Mm-hmm.